Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, it's great to be able to welcome you to another episode of the Beeson Podcast. Today we get to hear a lecture from Dr. Mark Edward Dever. Mark Dever, uh, if you've been listening to the Beeson Podcast, you may have heard an interview by him. He's been several times to Beeson over the years. Uh, he is the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He's been there since 1994. And it's not too much to say that the Lord has done a remarkable work of renewal through his ministry at Capitol Hill. It's one of the great churches in our country today. Mark is a scholar. He studied at Duke University, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and then at Cambridge University, where he did a Ph.D. focusing on Richard Sibbs. And that's really the subject of his talk today. This originated here at Beeson Divinity School several years ago as a part of our Reformation Heritage Lectures. We asked Mark to speak about Puritan visions of the church, and he chose three figures, John Bunyan, a Baptist, Jonathan Edwards, a Congregationalist, and today we get to hear Richard Sibbs, an Anglican. Well, these are three great figures, and Mark does a wonderful job of talking about Sibbs, his concern for spirituality and ecclesiology. Let me say, if you're not familiar with Mark's book called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, that's probably what he's best known for, and his ministry called Nine Marks, uh, you can get a new copy of the third edition published just in 2013. It's available with an introduction by our friend David Platt. You're going to enjoy listening now to Mark Dever as he takes us back to the 17th century with lots of relevance for the life of the church today, a talk on Richard Sibbs, Puritan Visions of the Church. Well, I bring you greetings from the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. We remembered Beeson Divinity School, your dean in the community here in prayer this last Sunday morning in our time together, and we do pray God's blessings on you and your service of him here. I'd like to thank Dean George and the faculty for giving me the invitation to come and give these lectures, the whole community of the Beeson Divinity School for welcoming me, as uh, everybody from Dean George's family to staff to everyone else here does so wonderfully, the two or three or four times a year it seems like I'm here. The task I've accepted in coming to give these lectures to you is to give three lectures on something about the Reformation heritage of the church. And particularly in praying about it and talking with Dean George about it, I thought some lectures on the Puritan vision, or better still, Puritan visions of the church would be appropriate. These lectures examine some of the matters which were central concern to Reformational Christians in the centuries following the Reformation. The Reformers had the idea that there were two basic marks of the church, two essential marks of the church, the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the sacraments. And on this there was unity between them and the generations that were to follow. And yet inside this unity, there's a great deal of diversity on how this is to be carried out. Well, this week we want to examine that unity, but also some of that diversity, some of the questions that there are, and to consider some of the implications for us today who would be faithful followers of Jesus. And it's my hope that the three subjects that are before us in these lectures provide some important lenses for us to understand something more of the Bible's teaching on the church and of what that means for us today. 
as Christians. Heirs of the Reformation may be especially open to the charge of wrongly ignoring the importance of Christ's Church. Perhaps our Reformation legacy of understanding justification by faith alone makes the Church seem optional. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. Well, we know that, don't we? That's, that's in our blood as evangelicals. But in our supposed evangelical clarity of what a Christian is, have we forgotten what a church is? And does forgetting one definition imperil the other? It's been observed that what one generation knows and teaches, the second generation assumes, and the third generation forgets and loses. Has that been the case with the heirs of the Protestant Reformation when it comes to a biblical understanding of the Church? Well, in these talks we give special attention to the great act of God's Spirit popularly known as the Reformation. And we want to see what, what some of those in the English stream came to understand the Church to be and what we might learn from them. It's these English Reformed Christian types who can broadly be classed as the Puritans. Now, we could spend all of the rest of our time here this morning presenting caricatures of the Puritans, and it would be an amusing way to pass the morning. You might well enjoy that more than the remarks that I've got planned. Macaulay, in his History of England, wrote that the Puritan hated bear-baiting, not because it gave pain to the bear, but because it gave pleasure to the spectators. It was the famous newspaperman H.L. Mencken who said that a Puritan was someone who feared that someone, somewhere, somehow, might be having fun. Even Lake Wobegon's Garrison Keeler has tried his hand at representing the Puritans. He said that the Puritans came to America in the hopes of discovering greater restrictions than were permissible under English law. Well, for those of us who've read the Puritans, we know that these are caricatures, amusing but still misrepresentations. The Puritans were not fundamentally characterized by restrictions, by fear, by hatred. They were instead characterized by the joy of having found the liberty of salvation in Christ, liberty from the penalty and power of their sins, and a renewed understanding following on that of the church as the people of God. You see, the, the church at the time, the medieval church, seemed to understand, uh, at least at the local level, the, the understanding of the church often was degraded to seeing the church as nothing more than a kind of spiritual plumbing, piped through the local priest, pouring God's grace out to the individual through, the, through obediently observing the sacraments of the church. You might call it a kind of church as spigot approach. But I get ahead of myself. On Puritans, I should just note, occasionally people will confuse the word Puritan and use it interchangeably with the word Presbyterian. Now, this is understandable for a few reasons that I won't take time to go into now, but it's not accurate. In fact, none of the Puritans that we're going to be considering this week were Presbyterians. If you consider it, Sibs was an Anglican, Bunyan, a Baptist of sorts, Edwards, a Congregationalist. Whatever their visions of the church were, none of them seemed fundamentally tied to a political structure as the governing nature of the church. But all three of us raised different questions about the church, questions which revealed the differences they would have had among themselves should they ever have been able to meet and talk this side of glory. 
and questions which reflect their united, faithful, Protestant understanding of the gospel, and which raise questions about ours. Now to the text for this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who, with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Well, in these marvelous verses, the Apostle Paul reflects with the Corinthians on the exceeding glory that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As he writes a bit earlier in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, up in verse 9, he says, If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So he concludes in the last verse we read, verse 18, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Paul wrote these words to the Corinthian Christians to encourage them by considering the great power of the gospel, the wonder of the message of Christ. Many years later, these same verses also captivated the mind and heart of another middle-aged minister. As he meditated on them, he too, like Paul, let his meditations overflow his mind. Only where Paul wrote, this other minister preached. He preached it for some weeks, actually, and months. On these very verses from Paul's letter, as he looked out around him, he saw a world very different than the one that Paul had seen. Paul, writing probably in the early 50s A.D., had seen a world in which his own understanding of God and his gospel had been revolutionized. Paul had given the last few years of his life to forwarding this gospel in the area that we now know as Turkey and Greece. He labored, planting churches there, beginning them by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as part of that cultivating of these new churches, Paul wrote to them, writing words of warning and instruction and encouragement. And he did this at least two or three times to this church in Corinth. Increasing fruit from the gospel combined with the, the strange and as yet infant um, syncretisms to made, made the church in Corinth a confused situation, but still hopeful by God's grace. Anyway, it was to that situation that Paul wrote this letter. Our second minister, altogether less well-known, indeed not even meriting a likeness in the Dome of St. Timothy's, I notice, <laughs> is Richard Sibbs. He's fallen into undeserved obscurity, only to be rescued, I trust, by the bookstore later today. Richard Sibbs saw in these very verses from 2 Corinthians an important sentiment about the supremacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ over the Old Testament law. Sometime in the early 1630s, we don't know exactly when, Sibbs, Cambridge educated and based, now preacher at Gray's Inn, London, Sibbs preached a series of sermons about these verses, later published as a book called The Excellency of the Gospel Above the Law which I believe the Banner of Truth is about to reprint as a Puritan paperback. These sermons were almost certainly preached during the last few years of Sibbs's life. They were published first in 1639. Sibbs had died four years earlier in 1635. They had been entered in the Stationer's Register in London, a kind of pre-incarnation of modern copyright arrangements, on the 10th of August, 1633. I think he must have recently finished preaching them and just went down to enter them for publication. 
When you read through them, you hear many things typical of the time. One of the things you hear is a, a very typically Protestant concern about the explosion of artisanship in early Stuart England. Sibbs says in his sermons at one point, there's a great humor in this age in looking to pieces of workmanship. If a man have skill to discern a piece, as they call it, it is more than ordinary. Beloved, what a vanity is this? Now, lest this sound like world-denying Gnosticism, let me say that I believe that Sibbs saw in the delight in architectural and even furniture detail evidence of a growing problem in the church that concerned him. He had said earlier in the series of sermons, it is the sin of this age, this formality. It is the sin of those that have anything in them. Set desperate drunkards and roarers and such wretches aside as plainly discover themselves to be acted by the spirit of the devil. Take them that conform themselves in any fashion to religion. The killing sin that they lie under is this same dead formality. They will hear a sermon now and then, look on a book, it may be pray morning and evening, but never look up to the living and quickening spirit of Jesus Christ, so that all they do is dead and loathsome, like salt that hath no savor. What is the best liquor, if it hath lost its life and spirit, but flat and unsavory? And blood, when the spirits are out of it, what is it but a loathsome gore? That was not a political comment. It was the spirit, Sib said, and not forms that quickened. Sibs knew this in his own life from the Word. So this morning we look at Sibs vision of the evangelical church. If you take notes on this whole series, tomorrow we'll be looking, Lord willing, at Bunyan in his vision of the spiritual church. Thursday, Jonathan Edwards and his vision of the visible church. But this morning, first, appropriately first, Richard Sibbs and his vision of the evangelical church. Now, there is no doubt that in the Church of England, and when I say the Church of England, you must not think of a denomination. You must remember that it was the only church in England in the early 1630s. This was in the pre-denominational period. In the Church of England, in those early days, many had been concerned about the growth in formalism, and Sibbs was clearly among those who were concerned. These years in the 1620s and 30s were years of conflict over what they called lectureships, public sermons paid for by local laypeople, given outside the day and time of a normal church services. Well, Sibbs had acted to promote the reform of the church throughout the realm by promoting exactly such preaching. He organized a group with some friends called the Theophies for Impropriations. The Theophies meaning the trustees for impropriations. They set it up formally in 1626 to acquire advowsons, that is, livings, uh, the, the right to name who would be the minister at a church. Since the Reformation, 80 years earlier, and Henry VIII dissolving the monasteries, many of the, the rights to name who would be the minister at the local church had fallen into lay hands. People had essentially bought the right to get the tithes of the church and out of that to pay the minister and to name whom they would like to be that minister. Well, Sibs set up a group of friends, some of whom were preachers, some of whom were wealthy, to take monies together to see which of these might be able to be bought and purchased, and then to find strategically placed pulpits and put in good preachers who would preach clearly the Protestant gospel. Sibs was one of the chief movers in this scheme, for which he earned the enmity of a number of clerics, not least in them the then Bishop of Bath and Wells, 
William Laud. In the midst of the uneasy and plague-ridden summer of 1630, Peter Halen, a fellow at Magdalen College, Oxford, attacked the fee of fees for appropriations in a sermon he preached at commencement. Halen saw the fee of fees as dangerous in form and substance. Formally, he may have quibbled with the means, but substantially he disagreed with the clearly reformed agenda that Sibbs and his friends forwarded in their vision of the church. You see, Richard Sibbs was a Puritan in the sense that he wanted the Church of England to be more pure. He was also a pluralist, not meaning that he thought there were many ways to God, but meaning that he held more than one job at the same time. We might call him a bivocational preacher, but that wouldn't do the situation justice. He was an author. His most famous series of sermons, The Bruised Reed and Smoking Flax, had just been published as a book. He was also a preacher of Gray's Inn in London, which is somewhat like the Senate chaplain's position today, though less official. He was master of a college at Cambridge, St. Catherine's College, all at the same time. He was a fundraiser and builder for his college. In all of these activities, Sibs was a success. And we should neither fail to notice nor discount the importance of that in his vision of the church. Even as power tends to corrupt, so success can tend to distort us. Success can shape us as we assume our own experiences as the rule. Anyway, at the same time, King Charles had been enforcing more conformity to the church's laws than ever his father, King James, had. Part of that campaign included elevating William Laud. Now, we can't take time here to chart Laud's rise to ecclesiastical and political power, but to suffice, suffice it to say that by 1628, he was sufficiently influential at the court with King Charles to have been condemned in a resolution passed by the Houses of Commons, by the House of Commons, and just a few weeks later, to be elevated by the king to the powerful post of the Bishop of London. He was at the very middle of the struggle between the king and the parliament. A revealing aside is recorded about a time when Laud, as Bishop of London, visited Colchester and had a rather angry exchange with a local person over the lectureship. Who would have that preacher's position in Colchester that had been funded by the layman? He was told that, and I quote, Colchester men would have had his admission of Mr. Bridges, of Emmanuel, for their lecturer in Mr. Maidenshead. Laud was angry and said, when you want one, you must go first to Dr. Googe and to Dr. Sibbs, and then you come to me. I scorn to be so used. Laud, like Halen, was determined to be rid of this undermining of the authority of the church. Well, in 1633, George Abbott, who had been the Archbishop of Canterbury, and himself much more reformed and Protestant in his theology, had died. And he was replaced by none other than William Laud. And one of Laud's first acts as Archbishop of Canterbury was to utilize the Court of Exchequer to dissolve the Fiafis and to transfer all of the livings they had accumulated. There were 12 of them so far at that point. All of them transferred to the crown. He got them on a technicality. Uh, they held property as a corporation without a royal charter. The accountants and lawyers will always have their uses. Well, it was in that summer, the summer of 1633, that Sibbs' younger friends, friends like Thomas Goodwin, friends like John Cotton, began talking of separating from the Church of England. Surely this church is too corrupt for us. During such days, how was Sibbs to maintain his equilibrium? How was he to maintain his hope in the church? In Laud, in many of the powers in the church at the time, Sibbs saw a kind of a tradition-centered vision of the church. It was a culturally conservative vision. 
favoring the existing powers. Sibbs had an altogether more word-centered, gospel-centered, preaching-centered view of the church. Listen to him now from this series of sermons on 2 Corinthians 3. What is the reason that in popery, the schoolmen who were witty to distinguish, that there was little spirit in them? They savored not the gospel. They were wondrous quick in distinctions, but they savored not the matters of grace and of Christ. These were the doctors of the church then, and Christ was hid and wrapped in a company of idle traditions and ceremonies of men, and that was the reason that things were obscure. Now of late, for these hundred years, in the time of Reformation, there hath been more spirit and more lightsomeness and comfort. Christians have lived and died more comfortably. Why? Because Christ hath been more known. Sib saw God's providence and even the gradual dawning of the gospel noonday sun. As the sun riseth by degrees till he come to shine in glory, so it was with the sun of righteousness. He discovered himself in the church by little and little. The latter times now are more glorious than the former. And because comparisons give luster, the blessed apostle here in 2 Corinthians 3, to set forth the excellency of the administration of the covenant of grace under the gospel, he compares it with the administration of the same covenant in the time of the law. And in the comparison, prefers that administration under the gospel as more excellent. And what's particularly stirring to note is that Sib's optimism held even in light of the surrounding events that seemed like they were putting the century-old Protestant settlement at risk. Again, Sib said, let us seriously and fruitfully consider in what excellent times the Lord hath cast us, that we may answer it with thankfulness and obedience. God hath cast us, that we may answer it with thankfulness and obedience. God hath reserved us to these glorious times better than ever our forefathers saw. Now, when you read these sermons and you also know the history, it is striking that he is able to continue to write so optimistically of the church when the very things that he treasures are under such attack. How could any self-respecting Puritan sound so optimistic during such times of increasing trial for the godly in the land? And the answer is this. Because fundamentally, Sibbs's vision of the church was a typical one for the magisterial reformers. The magisterial reformers are people like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Cranmer. They're called magisterial as opposed to the so-called non-magisterial reformers like uh, the Anabaptist Minna Simons. They're called magisterial not because they were such masterful reformers, though they were that, but because they worked through the magistrates. They worked through the political rulers. They didn't try to disestablish the churches. But the common thread that Sibs and all these earlier magisterial reformers had was a commitment to understanding the preaching of the word as being at the heart of the church. That is to say, he had an evangelical vision of the church with the evangel, the good news, and the proclamation of that news being at the center of the church. Sibbs said, the mark whereby this church is known is especially the truth of God. That is the seed of the church, the truth of God discovered by his word and ordinance, to which is annexed the sacraments and ecclesiastical government but the former, the truth of God, most necessary. And these three were typified in the ark, for there was the law signifying the word, and the pot of manna signifying the sacrament, and the rod to show the discipline. 
Those three were, as it were, types of the three marks of the church. But especially the word, for it is the seed of the new birth, the word. Wheresoever the word hath been published, and there hath been an order of teachers, and people submitting themselves, there is a church. Though perhaps there might be some weakness in other regards. So it is that Sibs could look at his scheme to help place good preachers, and even his own position being under attack, and still find that the Church of England was a rich place for the gospel. I quote Sibs again from this series of sermons. Now of late for these hundred years in the time of Reformation, there hath been more spirit and more lightsomeness and comfort. Christians have lived and died more comfortably. Why? Because Christ hath been more known. Again, he observed the knowledge of God's love in Christ, the believer's possession of the Holy Spirit, that because we have all these abundantly in these latter times of the church, in the second spring of the gospel, in the reformation of religion after our recovery out of popery, there is a second spring of the gospel. Oh, beloved, how much we are beholding to God. Never since the beginning of the world was there such glorious times as we enjoy. We see how the holy apostle doth prefer these times before former times. When the veil was upon their eyes, and when all was hid in ceremonies and types and such things among the Jews, now, saith he, we behold the glory of God and are changed by the Spirit from glory to glory. To conclude all, therefore, consider that the glory of the times and the glory of places and persons, all is from the revelation of Christ by the Spirit, which hath the Spirit accompanying it. The more God in Christ is laid open, the more the times and places and persons are excellent. The times were excellent in Sibs's mind, Laudian innovations notwithstanding, because he firmly believed in the centrality, maybe even the sufficiency, of the right preaching of the gospel for the health and the existence of the church. Sibs sounded like all Protestant reformers when he preached that hearing begets seeing in religion. Death came in by the ear at the first, Adam hearing the serpent, that he should not have heard, death came in by the ear. So life comes in by the ear. We hear, and then we see. Quoting Psalm 48, as we have heard, so have we seen. It is true in religion, most of our sight comes by hearing, which is the sense of learning. God will have it so. Therefore, we should maintain all we can. This beholding of the glory of the Lord, referring back here, of course, to 2 Corinthians 3, in the glass of the word, and for that end, hear much. Now, this should not be understood to say that Sibs worshipped preaching, that he was a homilyolater, to coin a word. Pretty good, homilyolater. He knew that, as he said, the scriptures profit nothing, preaching profiteth nothing, the sacraments will profit nothing, there is none of these will be meet indeed unless the Spirit of Christ quicken them. But he knew that there was no better means to present Christ to the people because this was God's ordained means. Again, Sibs, you will ask me, what is the best glass of all to see and know Christ in? If you ask a papist, he will show you crucifixes and such kind of things. Oh, but to behold Christ in the glass of the word with a spirit of faith, that is the best picture and representation that can be. It is scarce worth spending so much time as to confute that foolery, to have any grace wrought in the heart by such abominable means as that is, as they use it. Take it at the best, it is but a bastardly help, and bastardly means breed a bastardly devotion. 
For will God work grace in the heart by means of a man's devising? If pictures be any teachers, they are teachers of lies, saith, saith the prophet in Isaiah 9. And in the church of God, till pastors and teachers became idols, idols never became teachers. Then came the doctrine of idols, teaching of the simple people, when idols became teachers a thousand years after Christ. So that the best picture to see Christ in is the word and sacraments. And the best eye to see him with is the eye of faith in the word and sacraments. Keep that clear. And we need no crucifixes, no such bastardly helps of bastardly devotion devised by proud men that would not be beholden to God for his ordinances. In Galatians 3, see what St. Paul saith his judgment was. O foolish Galatians, before whom Christ hath been painted and crucified. How was he painted? Nothing but by the preaching of the gospel. And in the sacraments laid open. Do you think there were any other crucifixes in the world then? Well, we can tell from these comments and more that Sibbs made in this series of sermons that he was concerned that England was squandering the great privilege that God had given her by grace to hear the gospel freely preached. But there's no doubt he knew it to be a great privilege. The more, he said, the more we hear the sweet love of God in Christ, the more the Spirit flows into the soul together with it, the Spirit goes together with the doctrine of the gospel, which is called the ministry of the Spirit. Therefore, let us delight in hearing evangelical points. The love of God opened in Christ. A civil, moral man, oh, he's taken mightily if he hear a moral, moral witty, politic discourse that toucheth him. And he's in his element then. But what is this to the gospel? This hath its use. Oh, but the Spirit goes with the opening of the gospel with evangelical points. And if our hearts were ever seasoned with the love of God, these points of Christ, and the benefits and privileges by Christ, they will affect us more than any other thing in the world. What then if this preaching should be lacking? Well, that was the question that English theologians in Sibbs' day posed to each other about the Roman Catholic Church. And that is the question that their separatist sons would ask them about their own Church of England. In Sibbs's hands, the centrality of preaching was a force for unity, not for dissent. It quelled disquiet rather than stirring it. And it did so exactly because, whatever other faults the church may have had, the church was committed to the Protestant, that is to say, the biblical gospel, the good news of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And to leave such a church would be tantamount to rending Christ's body said Sibbs. And indeed, he preached, so it is a matter of comfort to see a communion of many in one. For what is the mystical body of Jesus Christ but many members joined in one body under one gracious and glorious head? And therefore, it is a deformed sight to see fraction and disunity. It is that the devil rules in, divide and rule. It is fit for the devil. God and Christ rule in union. The same Spirit of God that knits the members to the head by faith knits the members one to another in love, and all grace is derived from the head to the members as they are united to the body. If there be, therefore, disunion, there is no grace conveyed so far as there is disunion. We must be dis disunited, not, Sib said, we must be united around the gospel. About 20 years earlier, Richard Sibbs had been faced with a difficult choice. Subscribe to the three articles or resign his college fellowship, his job in Cambridge. Through the popularity of his public preaching in Cambridge, Sibbs had come to be known by many people who were not so well disposed to him as the people who listened to him preach. As a licensed minister, he, along with a Mr. Bentley, 
another lecturer in the town, had to subscribe to the three articles of Canon 36 of the Canons of 1604. These articles asserted first that the king was the supreme head and governor of the realm in spiritual and ecclesiastical, as well as in temporal matters. Second, that the Book of Common Prayer contained nothing contrary to the Word of God, and that it and only it should be used as a guide for worship. And finally, that the 39 articles were all agreeable to the Word of God. The subscription was to take the following form. I, first and last names, do willingly and ex animo, that means from the soul, subscribe to these three articles above mentioned and to all things that are contained in them. In report of the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cambridge, it appears that both Bentley and Sibbs subscribed to that, though Sibbs did it less willingly than Bentley. I quote, the person recording this interview wrote this down in the minutes, Sibbs hesitated to do so, not because he had any resolved opinion against the articles, but for fear to displease his crazy auditors, the people who listened to him preach. Well, for the next few decades, Sibbs lived out this compromise. He submitted to the established authorities in the church, and yet he never tired of trying to improve the preaching that those in the churches would hear. Described after his death with the phrase amiable living, Sibbs was remembered wistfully in the more contentious 1650s as a type of the Christians of a more pacific age who, like a peaceful physician, applied himself to preserve the vitals and essentials of religion, that the souls of his hearers might not evaporate and discharge themselves in endless, gainless, soul-unedifying and conscience-perplexing questions. Sibbs understood moderation to be at the heart of Christianity. He said, what is the gospel itself but a merciful moderation in which Christ's obedience is esteemed ours and our sins laid upon him, and wherein God of a judge becometh a father, pardoning our sins and accepting our obedience, though feeble and blemished. Throughout his lifetime, Sibbs had seen men he respected resign their livings, their jobs, out of scruples about conforming. He conformed, but some of these others would not. Paul Baines, who preached when he was converted, would not, and so he was thrown out of his position of ministry. William Ames would not. Ezekiel Culverwell would not. But during the last years of his life, the church seemed to be hemorrhaging. The people who would conform sometimes and then not again became less tolerated. Men began more openly to choose ministry outside of England, whether in Holland or over in New England. But in this especially, moderation was important in Sibbs' response to those who would separate themselves from the Church of England. Sibbs said, such separatists forget that the Church of Christ is a common hospital, wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other, that we should all have ground of exercising mutually the spirit of wisdom and meekness. Instead, he said, for private aims, they wound the Church by leaving. Yet in his ardor, years earlier, Sibbs had reminded the hearers of the necessity of coming out of popery, lamenting that it shows the coldness of the times when there is not enough heat of zeal to separate from a contrary faith. Now, while this was meant as a statement to call people out of Rome and out of a growing ceremonialism in his own church, it could easily be taken to be a pro-separatist statement. And the older Sibbs got, the more his younger friends, who agreed with him theologically otherwise, began deciding that they could not do what Sibbs had done and remain in the Church of England. Sibbs lived through the double-edged nature of the arguments which the godly had used against Rome. Moderation was clearly in the eye of the beholder. If Rome could be declared apostate, why not the increasingly corrupted Church of England with her growing ceremonies? This is precisely the question that Sibbs tried to answer late in his life 
to a person who wrote him distressed. Sibbs wrote back a brief six-page consolatory letter to an afflicted conscience. In it, he countered the argument which he had used against the Roman church. Sibbs wrote, but you will say England is not a true church and therefore you separate. Sibbs's proof of the Church of England as a true church is that it has all the marks necessary of a church. Sound preaching of the gospel, right dispensation of the sacraments, prayer, he said, religiously performed, evil persons justly punished, though not in that measure as some criminals and malefactors deserve, and the production of many spiritual children in the Lord. Yea, many of the separation. If ever they were converted, it was here with us. And I'm sure when Sib said that, he remembered people he had seen come to know the Lord who were now separatists, people like John Cotton. And even if it is admitted that England's church is corrupted with ceremonies, Sibs argued, must we make a rent in the church for circumstantial evils? That were a remedy worse than the disease. He then pointed out that all churches have corruptions, even those abroad which are more free from ceremonies, yet are more corrupt in preachers, which is the main, as in profanation of the Lord's day, etc. Sibs concluded by exhorting the person with the afflicted conscience, there will be a miscellaneous mixture in the visible church as long as the world endures. So it is no better than soul murder for a man to cast himself out of the church, either for real or imaginal corruptions. So let me admonish you to return yourself from these extravagant courses and submissively to render yourself to the sacred communion of this truly evangelical Church of England. Sibbs' defense of the truly evangelical Church of England was a brief and powerful one, no doubt worked out in his own conscience over many years as he dealt with these questions. No wonder Sibbs gained the reputation for ability to bring the nonconformists about the best of any in London. As he said, sympathy hath a strange force. In 1697, 81-year-old minister of the church in Salem, Massachusetts, looked back on the first generation of ministers, which included his father, who came from England to New England during all these tumultuous years in the Church of England, and remarked, Our fathers did in their time acknowledge there were many defects and imperfections in our way, and yet we believe they did as much as could be expected from learned and godly men in their circumstances. End of quote. Such was the respect accorded to Sibs after his death from those who differed from him and yet esteemed him. To Richard Baxter, Sibs was, quote, one of those old moderate sort of Episcopal men who were commonly in doctrine Calvinists, end of quote. Not that Sibs was a moderate man when preaching the necessity of justification by faith alone or the certainty of God's salvation of the elect, or the duty of all members of the covenant to fulfill their obligations. No record remains of Sibs ever being put into position by those in authority over him to equivocate on such doctrinal distinctives. He never faced that. Those essentials were not put in jeopardy. His, modera his moderation was reserved for those externals of religion, which he deemed matters indifferent, and which his church deemed edifying, like the use of the sign of the cross at baptism or the wearing of a surplice, something kind of like this, only whiter. Given the changes that were about to come in England, hindsight suggests that as the Lord Clarendon later wrote about one of Sibs' contemporaries, he died in a season most opportune, and in which a wise man would have prayed to have finished his course, and which in truth crowned his other signal prosperity in this world. Even in his last years, when he must have felt, I think, most alone in the last year and a half or two years, he could have most easily despaired. He remained till his dying day a member of the sacred communion of the truly evangelical Church of England, reflecting a lifetime of faithful and fruitful experience. It's understandable to me that in his will, written three days before he died, Sibs should commend his soul to God 
with humble thanks that he hath vouchsafed I should be born and live in the best times of the gospel. So what about Richard Sibb's vision of the church for us today? Won't be much time to consider this here. Maybe we can do that more in our luncheon afterwards with questions and answers. But let me just suggest a few things. I think Sibbs challenges us with a recognition of the centrality of preaching the gospel in the life of the church. The centrality of preaching the gospel in the life of the church. His answer to that correspondent who wrote him with the afflicted conscience, struggling with separatism, shows Sibbs' devotion to the gospel and practically his devotion to its centrality. Much else might be amiss, he says, but if the preaching is right and rightly central, all will not be lost. Well, I want to point out four things that we might think about from that. Implications of what Sibbs understood about the gospel in the church that come as a challenge to us. First, preaching is more fundamental than polity. Preaching is more fundamental than polity. This was over and against some of the people of his own day who believed that God's word very clearly ordained necessarily that there be bishops that rule the church. Or others would say that there be presbyteries that rule the church. Or others would say that the local congregation must rule the church, for whom polity, the structure of the church, seemed to be the main point, and that without which you have nothing. Sibs challenged that in his own day. He challenges us today, I think, on our denominationalism. When our denominational structures may sometimes seem to be the main point. Richard Sibbs, as a good Anglican, to use some anachronistic phrase, seemed to have a good sense that any church above the local level was a parachurch organization, was to be used for the spread of the gospel, for the building up of the body, was not in and of itself ultimate. Much more we could say on that, but I'll leave that for more discussion at lunch. Preaching is more fundamental than policy. Second, preaching is more generative than discipline. Preaching is more generative than discipline. In other words, some of the separatists said, but the Church of England cannot be a true church because it leaves in her communion too many who should not be a part of any visible church by their teaching or by their life. Sibs seemed to agree with them in some ways. And yet he realized that more important than correct discipline was correct preaching. Discipline could get some of the wrong people out, but it was preaching that put the right people in. Preaching is generative. Preaching is seminal. Preaching is the message of Christ that comes out through which God's Spirit converts us. Sibs understood that. That was as opposed to some of the separatists in his own day who wanted to make the matter of church discipline the ultimate matter of the Christian church. Today, if we want to apply that, we can't think of too many people who seem to make discipline the ultimate matter in a church. Perhaps, though, our application of it would be those who major on thinking the answer is to be found in the boundaries of our church rather than at the center. There might be some who think those boundaries, that is, in excluding people, are the most important thing and seem to even overshadow the central preaching of the gospel. But more likely for us today, the problem would be those who think the boundaries being open, accepting of all, trying to include all within the church might be the thing that Sibs would challenge us with today as he says, know that our preaching of the gospel is more life-giving than any other apparent acceptance unquestioningly of people in the church. It is the message of Jesus Christ that saves, not your warm, welcoming, affirming fellowship. A third thing, preaching 
is more substantial than liturgy. Sibs, as I say, preached in garments not too unlike these every time he preached. He understood ceremonies. He understood forms. He agreed to submit to them all. And yet he knew that more important than all of them was preaching. More important than all of those was preaching the message of Christ because that's people to know him. So he was against the ceremonialists and formalists, as he would call them in, in his own day. How would that apply to us today? Perhaps it applies to all of us when we're tempted to become a kind of worship devotee as opposed to the preaching. To think that the style, the forms that we use, whether it's an Anglican form like Sib saw, or a free church form, a Bible church or a Baptist church, a Lutheran form, a Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian form, uh, a seeker-sensitive form, a chorus as opposed to a hymn form, or a hymn as opposed to a chorus form, but that some form is really the answer. Sibs would say, no, more than any set particular form of our worship, the content of the preaching is absolutely central. Whether you sing a mighty fortress or sing Alleluia, the content of the preaching is what saves people. Now, I want to be careful here. In everything I've said, I'm not suggesting that Sib said, nor that I would come into the idea that any of these other things is unimportant. I think how we worship is terribly important. I think how we discipline our churches is terribly important. I think even the structure of our church is important. Well, almost nobody else seems to think that today. I think all of these things are important. But I'm trying to be faithful to Sibs and let him speak to us in saying that none of these things are as important as the preaching of the gospel. It is more fundamental than our structures. It is more generative and seminal than our discipline. It is more substantial than our liturgy. And finally, it is more complete than even the sacraments. Sibs was very um, biblical in his understanding of the sacraments, I think. He had an elevated understanding of their importance and significance as signs of God's grace. And yet he knew, over and against what his Roman Catholic theological opponents were saying, that God's grace did not come fundamentally via the sacraments. It came through the Word. And you find that whenever he writes about both, he'll go back and mention, but it's the preaching of the Word that's central, that's primary. Now, in the evangelical community today, there are not that many who are trumpeting the sacraments as, as the thing that should replace preaching. Maybe some in some denominations struggle with that. But those of us who are self-consciously evangelical in mainline denominations or otherwise very clearly don't tend to struggle with that as much, replacing of preaching by the sacraments. But should we do so, Sibs is an instructive one to look at. And there may be other ways in which we think the sign and obvious show of God's power is what will convert people. Some of the things that were written in the last decade or so about evangelism and acts, being power evangelism, these obvious signs and displays of God's power, surely these we may think are what are really central. Well, so I think Sibs would challenge us on that. No, it is something as uninterestingly, as apparently culturally archaic as me standing here talking to you while you're all quiet. Me giving a monologue that somehow God in his wisdom uses to bring life to people. Some of the cultural critics today challenge the primacy of preaching, challenge this whole line of thinking, saying that this is a terrible way to think. It's authoritarian in its very nature. It's totalitarian. One person stands there and speaks. Everyone else is dumb and silent. We should get rid of that and have a much more interactive approach. Well, I think you tear down the Christian religion if you do that. God stands himself. 
He is self-existent, apart from us entirely. He does not need us in any way to augment his happiness. But he chooses in his great love, in his overflowing of his nature, to create us and to bring us into the love communion that the Father has eternally with the Son and with the Spirit. And in doing that, we are addressed as those people as dead spiritually as the dry and desiccated bones in the vision Ezekiel had. We simply lay there and God's Spirit comes through His Word. And in the preaching of that Word, God's people are brought to life. Well, I could obviously keep going for a long time on this, but I'm sure that lunch awaits and there's more we can talk about there at that time. Let me just close by challenging you, whoever you are here, whatever position you hold in your church, to listen to our brother Richard Sibbs, to understand something of the centrality of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the evangelical nature of anything that can truly be called a church. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do pray that you, your glory, your word, the message of Christ would be lifted up in our own hearts as individuals and in our churches as we gather even this Sunday. We pray the word would go forth powerfully and that by it your spirit would create your church. For Jesus' sake, amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.